We sometimes flippantly say to ourselves, that was a miracle. Like, for instance, when you walk in to the license bureau and there's no line. <laughs> and the attendant is nice. <laughs> That's a miracle, right? <laughs> or you drive from East Sunshine to West Sunshine and every light is green we'd say, that's a miracle. Or we might be like Al Michaels, who in 1980 was the sportscaster on the Russia-American hockey game. The USA beat the Russians. And he said, do you believe in what? Miracles. Yes. A miracle? Eh, there's such a thing called a coincidence. That's a haphazard event a chance occurrence which has a you know a low odds of, of happening but doesn't really lot rise to the level of being a miracle a miracle is an event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific causes it can only be explained by divine intervention turning water into wine seeing somebody being risen from the dead or having a life completely transformed, having a, a worldview of Islam changing into a Christian worldview. That's, that is truly a miracle. No natural cause can offer a sufficient explanation. We're in this series called Spiritual Warfare, Clothing Required, where Luke says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's as if Luke is saying, okay, there are coincidences, there are miracles, and then there are extraordinary miracles. I mean, these miracles were different, perhaps even strange, because people were being healed, they were having demons cast out of them by merely touching an apron, or handkerchiefs. You got to admit, that's extraordinary. I mean, how could God do this kind of a thing? Well, we noticed last week how God rewards faith. I mean, these were people from a very idol-worshiping background. They were imperfect, and yet God rewarded their faith. They didn't have a PhD in theology, like us, they had backgrounds that perhaps they were, you know, not proud of. They had skeletons in their closet, just like we do. And we get the idea that this narrative that uh, has all these miracles, sometimes we think that, you know, can that really happen today? I think it can. I'm, I'm not going to say you can take a handkerchief and, a, and an apron and see a miracle. Paul didn't tell them to do that, but I can tell you that God honored that anyway. They were so desperate. They believed God so passionately that they were willing to do things like that to kind of prime the pump and to see a miracle. And I think God could see through all the rest of it to see their hearts that they just really wanted to see God at work. God give us that kind of passion, that kind of simplicity in our faith that he can break through whatever it is that's keeping our culture in bondage. 
it appears that these folks were just so confident that God could heal, that they were willing, by, by all indications in our passage, they just went to Paul's shop, it appears. He was a tent maker. Took an apron, took these handkerchiefs, kind of, you know, do-rag he'd wipe his forehead with. They took these things, and God healed. Extraordinary. There's another twist to our story. There's some uh, Jews who uh, tooled around during this time in which they were basically exorcists, okay? They would, they would cast demons, or try to, out of other people. And this is what they did for a living, apparently. Uh, they saw miracles being done in the name of Jesus by Paul and thought that they could do the same thing and so started you know, giving Jesus' name like it was some kind of magic spell. They certainly got the attention of the demon that they were dealing with. And that's what we read about in our passage in Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. Let's all stand as we look at this. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is one of those I wish I had been there moments to look (laughs) at the faces of these Jewish exorcists. As soon as this demon spoke to them, it's like, "Uh uh-oh, we are way out of our league on this one. We mentioned last week that Luke uses a couple different terms for no when he refers to Jesus and Paul. The change in verbs is like a sliding scale of familiarity. Jesus, the demons know well. Paul, they're you know, acquainted with, but the seven sons are completely unknown to them in the spiritual world. These guys were powerless. They were posers in terms of spiritual power. Now, the name of Jesus is not some kind of, you know, mechanical series of words that we say 
to have power over demons or anything else. It's not like some magic formula to pronounce at the end of a prayer in Jesus' name, you know, kind of like you got to put a stamp on the envelope and say in Jesus' name, and then it gets to God. It means much more than just some kind of incantation or magical words. Now, we're instructed to pray in the name of Jesus. John writes that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father, that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Corresponding to that, 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. To invoke the name of Jesus is to pray consistent with the will of God, consistent with the character of Christ. I mean, it has a, has a whole host of, of truths that are kind of front-loaded on those words that, you know, the, the writers of Scripture assume that we understand when we say, in the name of Jesus. according to his will, his desires. To invoke the name of Jesus is also to expect God to make good on his promises. For instance, in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. By the name of Jesus, we acknowledge that Jesus is the agent of salvation, that God has promised that he will respond to those who humble themselves before him and ask for their forgiveness and trust in the gospel. Those are things that we can be sure of. There's no salvation outside of the work of Jesus and the power of Jesus. So we invoke his name for salvation. The point is, is that when you come to the name of Jesus to exercise demons, it's to act in a way that is consistent with Jesus' character, to operate in his will, in his power. And if Jesus is given authority to do that, then we operate in that as well. But how could these Jews, to whom most of them had already put their stake in the ground that they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah? How could people like that exercise demons? I mean, it seems that only those who know Jesus and are known by Jesus can operate in his name in this way. What happens next should come as no surprise. Demons can sometimes overpower humans. They have unusual physical power as they inhabit other people. We read this of one demon-possessed person in the Gospels. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I've seen situations like this. I know it can happen. To master them and overpower them means Human strength was no match for demons. And the sons of Sceva found this out very quickly, that they were no match because they were beaten. And to add insult to injury to a, a Jewish culture that was very modest, 
They were stripped of their clothes and bloodied. You're talking about a complete beatdown, complete humiliation. You know, in contrast to that scene are the words of the Apostle Paul in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, where in dealing with spiritual warfare, he encourages the Ephesians to, and imagine they're thinking probably of this scenario too, to clothe themselves with the armor of God in dealing with spiritual warfare. Instead of, instead of trying to face spiritual warfare by yourself in human ingenuity, instead of thinking maybe seven to one odds are pretty good that guarantees victory, no, it doesn't, not in a human sense. Paul says, be strong in the strength of God, put on every piece of armor that is available through Christ. You depend upon Christ. Saying our strength is in Christ and doing it are two different things. There are people who talk a good game, but... What does it mean to actually depend upon Christ? Steve Winger from Lubbock, Texas, writes about his last college test. It was a final that he had in a logic class, and it was known for its very difficult exams. So he writes that to help us on our test, the professor told us that we could bring as much information to the exam as we could fit on a piece of notebook paper. I remember a teacher that I had in psychology that said this same thing to me in our class. Worst class, by the way, I ever took in college, but anyway. So I had, I had five columns on each side of paper, four-point type. It was the entire semester of notes. And I could barely read it, but she gave us the go-ahead, I'd, so I took advantage of it. And I learned nothing in that class, but anyway. You say, that probably comes as no surprise to you. So this teacher said you can put as much as you want on this eight and a half inch piece of paper. So one student walked into class, put a piece of paper, notebook paper, on the floor and had an advanced logic student stand on the paper. And the advanced logic student told him everything that he needed to know and he was the only student to ace the test. The the only way to do battle with spiritual forces is to have Jesus Christ stand in for us. We have to operate in his strength, in his knowledge, in his wisdom, dependent completely on him every step of the way. A common prayer for all of us should be, more of him, less of me. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. First, let's notice that when the work of God is properly recognized, there is a fear of God amongst his people. And Jesus is more famous, right? The issue was not how great Paul was, but how powerful God is and how he can intervene in a situation. And Jews and Greeks acknowledge this work of God. And it says 
that they feared him. They feared him. Now, granted, there's an unhealthy fear of God that one can have. Often has, you know, shame and guilt associated with it. And then there is a healthy fear and respect that we have of God because he's God, we're human. He judges, we don't. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, we're not. So we fear him. I love what Oswald Chambers said. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Verses 18 and 19, I think, provide one of the most beautiful and plain pictures of repentance for us. Notice they came confessing and divulging, openly disclosing their practices in magic. Christians, right? Maybe we just need to stop right there and ask ourselves, when's the last time you have openly divulged a sinful practice in your life? Just like they did. Uh, James says that when you confess your sins to one another, there's healing. Now, I'm not saying you can you know, should wear something on your back saying, hi, I'm so-and-so who did this. But there's a, there's a group that we can go to, to be open and honest with, those that we're most intimately acquainted with, maybe a life group or whatever, for help, for prayer. But we, we acknowledge we're vulnerable that we're struggling with something, and that's what these guys did. The Ephesian culture was so enmeshed with idol worship and sorcery that it was just expected that this would be a part of your life. They, they just thought it was normal. It's kind of like growing up in America and, you know, being materialistic. Or if you're a guy, being involved in porn. I mean, it's like, what guy doesn't? Is everybody does. And, you know, I'm trying to grab the American dream, so why not have credit cards and everything else and get maxed out and chase that dream and get what you want, right? We become consumers instead of givers. It's a part of our culture. But these are also things we need to repent of, even though it's true of most of us. Now, I'm not condemning you. It's just that we understand that these things are so prevalent, how can it not touch us? How can it not impact us? And I I don't say this to beat us down or to say that we have to do this in our own strength. The fact is, it is God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So again, we stand upon Christ. We stand that there is forgiveness when we confess, right? And when we repent, God will give us the strength for that. The sanctification process for a believer usually does not happen in an instant, The holiness of the believer starts at salvation and then is followed by a thousand decisions when we say yes to obedience with whatever is in front of us. Yes to Christ. Yes to what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Yes when he prompts us. The repentance of the Ephesians, this wasn't filled with just promises that they won't 
practice their magic. Okay, I promise I won't do it again. No, it's not that. It was followed by action, right? They burned all the materials that had anything to do with their magic, with their sorcery. So though Christians are irrevocably forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future, there still persisted pagan practices and a way of thinking that accepted sorcery as a way of life. Now, for those of you who think you can lose your salvation, that's a problem. (laughs) Because you're going to have to explain how people practicing sorcery were still called Christians. But God was moving them to repentance. And all of us need to be moved towards repentance with the stuff that's in our lives. There's a decision to break from sin followed by a sacrifice of obedience. And the detail that Luke provides here, I I was asking the Lord in this, why, why does it matter that it was this many pieces of silver? And then it dawned on me, because God wants us to know that this really costs them something. He wanted us to know the extent of their sacrifice, how far they went in their obedience. One piece of silver was one day's wage. That means it would be equal to 50,000 days of wages. They burned 137 years worth of salary in collective sorcery scrolls. That was one humdinger of a bonfire. Are you struggling with porn? What are you willing to give up? Are there any other addictions or bondages that you're struggling with that are, you know, this is an issue? I want to give you hope. This is not condemnation. I want to give us hope. Because Christ lives in us, we have the ability to say no to temptation. But you have to say yes to obedience. And God might be calling you to an action. And the more that you postpone that decision, and I have a feeling God has probably already spoken to you about something that you could do. But you're saying, nah, nah, you explain it away. But we have the ability to say no to temptation. I mean, the world is filled with all kinds of excuses that psychologize why people sin, or they don't call it sin, but why they're in this bondage. You're born that way. My parents, you know, were this. So we find plenty of people to blame and to excuse the sin. So to those who feel defeated, here's some good news. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So it's like, okay, join the club. We're all tempted, right? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, the specific action to repent, that you may be able to endure it. Follow up the confession with action. Empty promises are meaningless until you put your money on the table. What action is God calling you to do? What's the bondage? Materialism? You know, here's one that I think 
is the greatest sin of all that I see in Christian community. And that is after people come to Christ, they wallow in unforgiveness. There are many Christians who accept grudges towards others like it's normal. It's as if they have a right to gossip or to cut others down who have hurt them. How far are you willing to go for repentance? How serious are you for making Jesus Christ the Lord of your heart? Or are you like one of these Ephesians in a Ouija-loving Christian bowing before the idol of Diana as you, you know, go to church on Sunday? Are you that kind of Christian? Or are you the kind that realizes that if Jesus is Lord of my life, it's going to be Lord of my money, Lord of my marriage, Lord of my relationships, Lord of how I work? He's transforming every portion of those lives. There's not something over here I just have for myself, this secret area, until you repent of that thing that you know that God is calling you to do. Your Christian life lacks the necessary fruit to demonstrate that Christ is truly Lord of your life. Ruth Tucker writes about Dr. Eleanor Chestnut after arriving in China in 1893 under the American Presbyterian Missions Board. Dr. Chestnut built a hospital using her own money to buy bricks and mortar. And the need for her services were so great that she performed surgery in her bathroom until the building was completed. One operation involved the amputation of a common laborer's leg. Well, complications arose and skin grafts were needed. And a few days later, another doctor asked Chestnut why she was limping. She said, oh, it's nothing. That was her terse reply. But finally, another nurse revealed that the skin graft for the patient came from Dr. Chestnut's own leg, taken with only local anesthetic. Fast forward a few years during the Boxer Rebellion of 1905, Dr. Chestnut and four other missionaries were killed by a mob that stormed the hospital. A sacrifice, a repentance that is costly is needed for us as a people to be acquainted with holiness. There is no holiness without cost, without repentance. And God calls us all to repent through our Christian life. Are we forgiven? Of course we are. But God is still calling us to repent, to turn from that thing. So whatever that is, whatever the Holy Spirit is calling you to repent from, I am begging you for the sake of your own health, but more than that, for the sake of the efficacy of the gospel in your life, Repent. Turn. Say yes to that action that God is calling you to. When Jesus was addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he said they were to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You can't repent without fruit, without definitive action. Repentance expresses sorrow of how we've offended God, but it's more than that. 
It's a decisive reorientation of one's life away from self to the lordship of Christ, that I'm no longer my own. I am his for his use. And that's followed. That, that initial salvation is then followed by many confessions of sin and corresponding acts of repentance until we die. So I come to Christ, I repent of my sin, I believe the gospel, and then that sanctification process is made up of a thousand more confessions and acts of repentance. You say, man, not a very good Christian. I guess I haven't been then. Because I, I got to tell you, I'm always confessing and repenting. I've got a lot of stuff going on, I guess. Now, am I worse than you? I don't know. But it's been my experience that I am really acquainted with sin. And I got a sneaky suspicion, you being a human, you are too. Now, if you think that as a Christian, you're not sinning anymore, well, let me read 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You're lying to yourself. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Luke is not interested in miracles just for their own sake or for the entertainment value in this narrative. He's interested in them punctuating the power of the word of God in transforming lives. Now I want you to notice the, the, the thing that Luke puts his attention on was not, look at the massive building they built. Woo! Look at now what's taking place on the stage, how excited people are. That worship band rocks. Boy, God is moving. Nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But that is not the final determination of God moving. You understand that? You can have all of that and then the lives of the people in that church are no different than the other people in the culture. No different in their marriage. They got just the same anger cycles and bondage going on. There's no real intimacy taking place. No different than the culture. Guys in porn all the time. No different than the culture. Divorce rate, no different than the culture. Single people bedding down with their boyfriend and girlfriends, no different than the culture, and you call yourself a Christian. That's hypocrisy. And so there's got to be something more than just the show, right? So how do you measure that? Well, it's not just what takes place on Sunday mornings. It's the hearts of people that are changed from a worldview that included, in the case of the Ephesians, idol worshiping, to one that was now dictated by the Word of God. I mean, you want to measure how effective a church is? You want to see if a church is producing the right fruit? Then look at the lives of those that are in it. What's the health of these families? How are they handling their money, the way they work, their relationships? Is it consistent with the instruction of God's will revealed in his word. None of us are perfect. I'm not saying that. 
But I'm saying when God reveals that sin, we're confessing and repenting. It's a, it's a progression. The holiness of the disciples is the preeminent measure over any other standard. Okay? If this was a shoe factory, we would want to make quality shoes. And that's how you would measure how effective we are as a church or, or as, as a shoe factory. But as a church, we look at the quality of the disciples in their lives as how effective the church is. That's the ultimate gauge. All the vision and value statements, all the discussions with the elders and staff, all the life groups, every ministry encounter at CCC is subservient to this. May the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray.